I'll be reading from Joshua chapter 4, 19 through 24. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. As we begin to emerge from this pandemic, in many ways we are entering a new and unknown world. There will be new obstacles and new opportunities. Much the same could be said about Joshua and the Israelites when they crossed the river and entered the new world of the Promised Land. What was God's answer for their uncertainty? A constant and compelling message we all need to hear. Be strong and courageous. Throughout this series, we have been on a journey with Joshua and the Israelites as God brought them out of Egyptian slavery and ultimately is delivering them into the future that he had planned for them the promised land, Canaan. And we have traveled with them thus far. And although Joshua's story and the Israelites' story doesn't perfectly parallel our story, as in many ways we are entering into a new world. And if you don't think the world in front of us is different than the world behind us, you need to open your eyes. We are entering into a new world. Things are always changing, but it seems like over the past 12 to 15 months, some things have just been accelerated and some other things have happened. And so it's a new world. And so as we look at Joshua and the Israelites crossing the Jordan, going into the promised land, again, that story doesn't perfectly parallel our story, but there are important lessons for us to learn. Important lessons for us to learn about God, about ourselves. Important lessons about what it means to step out in faith. And so we're going to be in Joshua chapter 4 today. If you have a Bible, you might want to open it up so you can follow along in your own text or on your own app on your device. Joshua chapter 4. When we left Joshua leading the Israelites, they were up to the Jordan River. And Joshua says, because God tells him to say this, Joshua says to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among us. And as we talked about last week, what God was saying is prepare yourselves. Put yourselves in a state of mind. Get yourselves ready. Do whatever you need to do to distance yourself from anything that's going to keep you from seeing God because you're about to walk on holy ground. Where you are going, God is there among you. And you will see that. It will be visible to you. So get ready. God is doing something big. And certainly, that's what God does. We look back at chapter 3, verse 17, by way of review. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground. 
while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Can you imagine being there that day? Can you imagine the sight of seeing this? What God did among them. He did something amazing. And it wasn't that they crossed the river. I mean, most people can find a way to cross a river. You might get a little bit wet, it might be muddy, it might be even a little bit dangerous, but you can probably find a way across a river. So it wasn't that they crossed the river, it was how they crossed the river. On one side, the river heaped up in a wall of water. On the other side, the water draining down the riverbed all the way to the lowest place on earth, the Dead Sea. And in the middle, dry ground. For all of Israel, the whole nation, to cross over into the promised land. My guess is people talked about that for a while. Maybe later that day they reflected on that. Maybe later that week. Maybe for weeks to come, for years to come, they said, do you remember Or maybe if they're talking to someone who wasn't there, maybe a child, let me tell you what happened that day. I can imagine the stories that they told, the stories about God doing amazing things, about one minute there being water flowing down the Jordan, and the next minute the water was not flowing. It was standing still, and they crossed over. And as they're telling these stories, you know, maybe they're including some details. There was there was an actual fish. I saw a fish walking by. I saw a fish on the dry ground. It was this big. How big was it? Okay, it was this big, but I saw a fish. And so they had these stories to tell, amazing stories. Now, we joke sometimes about parents and grandparents telling stories about what life was like when they were young. You know, it's the when I was your age stories. And sometimes there seems to be a little bit of embellishment, maybe a little bit. The classic story is, you know, well, when I was your age, I had to walk to school in the snow, barefoot, uphill, both ways. That's the classic story, right? And we hear those stories, and they're sort of entertaining, and and sometimes they're educational. We learn some things, and it's nice. I have found myself, the older I get, the more I'm telling those stories, I used to hear those stories, now I'm telling those stories. Stories about life before all this technology that we got. You know, stories about the good old days. Stories about eight-track tapes and rotary phones and party lines and playing outside until the streetlights came on and then you had to go home. Do you remember those days? Telling stories about when I was a kid and we would all load up in the family sedan and my spot was on top of a blanket, in the floorboard, in the back seat. No car seats, no seat belts, and certainly no whining. <laughs> I didn't have an iPad to watch stuff on, you know. We watched the back of my dad's head as he was driving. Or me, I was in the floor, I watched the upholstery on the top of the car as we went by. Or do you remember the seat in some of those cars? I forgot what it's called. In the very back, and you're looking out the back as you go, some of those station wagons, and you're waving at all the people behind you. You never get to see where you're going. You just see where we've been the whole time. (laughs) And again, those stories are are, are good, and they're funny, and they're entertaining, and, and they're interesting, and maybe we do learn something about the people we're closest to. But let's be honest. Those stories are distant 
they seem like another world. They're from another time, another place. And when we tell those stories to our kids and our grandkids, many times they're thinking, what does this have to do with me? And I get that. I understand that. To illustrate this point, I I saw a video that a father made a couple of years ago. He took his his phone or his video and and he, he asked his two teenage sons, he said, here's a rotary telephone. He wrote down a phone number. He said, you have four minutes to successfully dial this number. And he gave them the number and he started the video. And those boys had no clue. They didn't know how to work the phone. They didn't know how to do the individual numbers. They didn't know to pick up the receiver. All of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? They didn't know to pick up the receiver before to get a dial tone. They had no idea. Why? Because that was from a different time. That was from, that was from another world almost. That has nothing to do with me, they might say. And yet, there are some stories. There are some stories that transcend time and place. Stories that maybe you've heard your parents or your grandparents tell. Maybe about their parents or their grandparents. Maybe coming over to this country. You see, that has something to do with you. That story has shaped your story. That story has informed who you are and where you are. Or maybe things that your parents have gone through. Or maybe things that that happened to your grandparents during a certain time in history. Or how they dealt with that. Or how they were treated. Or what they went through. All of those stories are more than just interesting. They have shaped who you are. They truly do have a direct impact on you. This story about Joshua and the Israelites crossing the Jordan going into the promised land is one of those stories. It transcends time and place. It is so important that we hear this story, that we tell this story, because this story is not from another world. Yes, it's from another point in time. It's from another geographical place, but it is our story, because the God behind it is our God. And that story needs to be told, and it needs to be heard. And so we go to Joshua chapter 4, verse 1. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight." So God wanted his people to commemorate this occasion. This didn't happen every day. This wasn't just a normal Tuesday. This was something big, something important. And God wanted his people to commemorate this occasion. So he says, get 12 people, one from each tribe. The whole nation is to be represented. No one's left out. 12 people, 12 tribes, grab 12 stones from the riverbed, the dry riverbed right where the priests were standing, right where they were holding the Ark of the Covenant. So in other words, the stones that represent the presence of God among you, get those out of the riverbed and put them over where you're going to camp. And so Joshua tells them what to do, but he also tells them why to do it. So we continue in verse 5. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder. So we're talking about not small rocks. I mean, I guess you could... (laughs) carry a small rock on your shoulder, but you wouldn't. So, you know, 
relatively large rocks, get them on your shoulder according to the number of tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. And so he not only says what they are supposed to do, he explains why they are to do it. These stones are to be a sign among you. They are to be a monument, a memorial for God's people forever. Now, at the end of chapter 4, we actually have sort of the the story retold with some some other details included. So let's go there. Verse 19 of chapter 4. On the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones that had that had taken out of, they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear or revere the Lord your God. So we have more of an explanation of what's behind these 12 stones. And we don't know exactly how Joshua set up these stones. We know where he set them up at Gilgal. And really that probably may not be a a town In the original language, there's an article there, so it'd be like the Gilgal. And that word, Gilgal, means circle, and so there's a good chance that maybe Joshua set up the stones in some type of circular configuration. It's also interesting to note that that history and archaeology has shown that at that time, there's a really good chance there was already a huge stone monument in place. And if that was put there by the inhabitants of the land, it wasn't for Yahweh God. And so maybe it was a monument that was built for pagan gods. And now picture this. God tells Joshua and his people, you go over into your destined future, your promised land, your new home, and you set up these stones that came right where the Ark of the Covenant was that represent Yahweh God and arrange them so that your people can see them and you can tell about them. It's almost a message to say, there is only one God in this land. There are no pagan gods to be worshipped, to be followed. There is one and only God in this land, the land of Canaan, and that is Yahweh God. And don't ever forget it. I love what's happening here. Here's what I want you to know. Every symbol has a story. And every memorial, every monument has a message to tell. That is just a truth of life. Every symbol, every sign points to something. Every monument has a message to tell. You have scars on your body probably. Every one of those scars is a symbol. And behind that scar is a story. Yeah, there's where I cut my fingers with a chainsaw last fall. There's where I cut my arm on barbed wire fence as a kid trying to jump over a ditch. (laughs) 
There's where I had knee surgery. You know, we all have these stories, and these scars remind us of these stories. There's a story behind every one of them. Same thing is true with symbols and photos. Photos are a great example. We take photos from a trip or, you know, when we're gathered with people we like or we want to remember that moment. And so behind that photo is a story. When we go on trips, we buy souvenirs. Those souvenirs are symbols. And when we see them, it reminds us of the trip or the vacation or whatever it was. That's the nature of signs and symbols and icons. Companies have logos and brands have logos and we are supposed to see those things and they are supposed to communicate something to us. Brand loyalty or a good experience or warm fuzzy feelings or whatever it is. The same is true for monuments. You go down to the Oklahoma City National Memorial and if you've never been to that, I would really recommend that you go And check that out. But when you go there, there are stories to be told. In fact, in the museum, as you work your way through it, there's a certain way to go through it. It literally tells the story of April 19, 1995, and the days and months leading up to that, and then what happened after that. It tells the story. And you go outside and you see all the icons everywhere. You see the chairs. Every one of those chairs has a story to tell, represents a life. That's the nature of monuments. That's the nature of symbols. So what is the story behind these 12 stones in Joshua chapter 4? What's the message that needs to be told? Oh, we don't have to guess. God tells us. He says, when your children ask you, hey, what are those stones? What is, what's going on with that? You tell them how God held back the waters of the Jordan. You tell them how God delivered his people on dry ground. You tell them about the power of God, how God provides for his people. You tell them who God is and what he does. That's the message. And if this was written during a time when many of the Israelites were in exile later, or at least if it was read during that time, you could see how that message was so important. If I'm in exile, I don't have my home. I am in someone else's home. I don't have a lot of freedoms or power. And I hear this story that God is powerful, that God provides for his people. That's a story I need to hear. That's a story we need to hear today. Because this story is not just from a different world. It's not just a story that's sort of interesting that we can teach our kids in Bible class or VBS. It's not just a story that happened in another time and another place. It is our story because God is still powerful. Verse 24, he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear or revere the Lord your God. That's the story that the hand of God is still powerful to provide, to rescue, to work in our world. We need to hear that message. We need to be reminded that God rolled back the waters, the waters that stood in the way of his will being done for his people. We need to hear the story of God rolling back the stone, the stone that stood in the way of God fulfilling his will through his son. 
so that we know that in our world, in our life, in our struggles, God can roll back anything that stands in the way of his will being done in this world and through his people. We need to know this story because it's our story. And so he instructs this generation to tell the next generation these important stories. Don't just absorb them. Don't just embrace them. Don't just hear them, but pass them on. That's how important they are. Pass them on to the next generation. And so I ask you, how are you passing on this story? The story of God's power and his provision. How are you passing on what God is doing in your life? And, and if you're a parent or a grandparent, maybe you're thinking, well, I, I bring my kids to church, and that's great. Obviously, that is wonderful. And I hope and pray that always the story will be told here from this pulpit, in our Bible classes, among our people, that it will be lived out here. But that's not enough. That's not enough. Parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, the next generation needs to hear the story from you. More than that, they need to see it in you. They need to see you live out what God is doing in your life. They need to see you and hear you speak of God's work in your life. They need to know your story, your testimony of faithfulness, the faithfulness of God and your faithfulness to God. So what are you doing to pass on the story? I think about the past year, 12 to 15 months. It's been a challenging year. I think we can all acknowledge that. There's been a lot going on in our world, in our culture, in our year, even among us. And this year, this pandemic year or so, I mean, just think, in, in future generations, it will be studied and scrutinized and criticized and analyzed. It, it will be looked at from every angle possible. And I just wonder, as you begin to, as hopefully, prayerfully, we continue to move forward, as we begin to look back, as you begin to look back, what will your message about the past 12 to 15 months be to the next generation, to your kids, to your grandkids? When you talk about what we've been through, how will you frame it? What will you say? What will you tell them you valued during that time? What will you tell them you did during that time? What will you tell them God did during that time? I want you to wrestle with that. Think about that. Because you have an opportunity to frame this story about who God is and who God's people were during this time. What will that story be? And will it be an inspiring story? How will you pass it on? Someone once wrote these words, and I love this quote. Without remembering, there is no identity. And without common remembering, there is no community. We find so much cohesion, so much solidarity, so much community in sharing our stories, in telling our stories, in remembering what God has done among us. That's why your family has traditions. Most families have certain ways of doing Christmas and Thanksgiving and birthdays, and, and you probably have very unique traditions in your family. That's why. Because those traditions or those family rituals, as they're called in social science, those things bring you together. You have that in common. They provide a sense of identity, a sense of community. 
I remember when I married into Carrie Ann's family, I learned quickly of a tradition they had. When they had a birthday in the family, they would take that person out to eat or have a special dinner, but at the dinner conversation, there was always the birth story. And so they would tell about the day that person was born, and they would include as many details as they could remember. And I love that tradition. And every year, you kind of heard a different take. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I wondered if they were just making stuff up or adding new details, like the fish story. (laughs) But I love that story being told every year because it reminds you of where you came from. It reminds you that this is your story. It reinforces that story. It provides a sense of unity and identity. That's what stories do. Jesus knew that. And so Jesus told a story. But he did more than just tell a story. He embodied a story. He gave us a story with his life, with his death, with his resurrection. And he said for us to embrace that story. And it's not a story that is distant, that is far removed, that is irrelevant for us. It informs our story. It shapes our story. It is our story. And so remember, Jesus gathered in an upper room with his disciples. And they were there to celebrate Passover. Well, Passover already had its symbols, didn't it? For the people of Israel, that was a rich part of their story, of their history. They had the lamb, the roasted lamb. And that lamb was there because its blood was used in Egypt. Do you remember? to put on the door frame. And that blood of that lamb signified who belonged to God. And in many ways, that blood rescued them. It saved them. It brought salvation to them. And that lamb was an important part of the Passover celebration. They had the bitter herbs. They had the unleavened bread with no yeast. They had the four cups of wine. The Passover had its symbols. But Jesus used some of those symbols and repurposed them. He repurposed those symbols as he told a new story, as he embodied a new story. And we want to spend some time in that story today as we participate in communion together. Now, I will say, I'm not sure Jesus used these little things in the upper room. (laughs) They are convenient, the little chiclet piece of bread or the little circular round piece of styrofoam bread. I got to tell you, I got to confess, the first time I ever saw one of these several years ago at an LTC convention, I had no idea. And I looked at that little round circle and I thought, that's a little divider for the bread. They forgot to put bread in here, so I just took it and put it in my pocket. I didn't know what to do with it. I was so uninformed. I've, I've grown up since then. Yeah, Jesus probably didn't have something like this, but it, it's convenient for us. It works, especially during this odd time. And so maybe Jesus had something more like this. Unleavened bread. The bread of the Passover that was already there. And you remember what Jesus did and what he said about the bread. He repurposed that bread. No longer would that bread represent the hasty exodus out of Egypt. Now, he said, this bread is my body. 
And do you remember what he did with the bread? He broke it. And if I'm there at the table with Jesus, I'm thinking, well, wait a second. If that's your body, why is it being broken? And of course, we know why it was being broken. Being broken for us. Because it would provide for us an invitation to be a part of that body. That body that endured so much injustice and pain and suffering and that hung on the cross for us and becomes an invitation for us to be a part of his body. And then I don't know what the cup looked like. I know it didn't look like this. It probably didn't look much like this. But he took one of the cups. And what did he say about the cup? No longer will you need the blood of the lamb because I am the lamb. The sinless, perfect lamb. And the blood of the lamb will provide rescuing and salvation and deliverance. But Jesus says it will be my blood given for you because I love you because I want to make a way for you and so he took these symbols if you will he took these what we sometimes call emblems the, the bread his body the cup his blood and he said this is my story and this is your story and it changes everything it's not a distant story from another place that is kind of interesting, that teaches us a few things. No, it has changed everything about our lives. It's changed everything. The Apostle Paul heard that story because someone told him. And he passed it on as well. And we read this passage sometimes at this communion time. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, as we participate in this communion together, this Lord's Supper, we sometimes call it, this new Passover we realize that the bread means something to us and the cup means something to us. And just like the story of Joshua and the Israelites pointed to the mighty hand of God, the provision of God, the deliverance of God, the same thing could be said about this. Because God has taken us out of slavery to sin, where we had no control, where our life was hopeless, our eternal life was gone. We were slaves to sin. He brought us through the waters. Not the Red Sea, not the Jordan River, the waters of baptism. Throughout these texts, there are several allusions to baptism. He brings us through the waters of baptism into what? A new world, a new life. What does the New Testament say? That we are a new creation in Christ. You see, the journey is the same. The hand of God is at work even among us. And so we use this time each week to remember the story, to re-engage the story as a community of faith. Because this story does that. It provides identity. By this common remembering, it provides community. And so I'm going to offer a prayer for the bread. We will partake of the bread together. 
we'll have a, a minute or so of reflection, and then I'll say a prayer for the cup, and we'll have a minute or so of reflection, and then we're going to sing a song together. So let's pray together over the bread. Father God, we thank you so much for the bread. We thank you what it represents in our lives. We thank you for the body that Jesus gave on our behalf. We thank you for being a part of his body. Father, we know that the story that unfolded on that Friday and then on that Sunday morning, 2,000 or so years ago, is not a distant story. It's not a story, story removed from us. It's a, it is our story. So we thank you. We thank you so much. Help us to embrace that story every day. Help it to make a difference in our lives, in our perspective, in our faith, in our trust in you, Father. In this moment, we give thanks for the body of Christ. And together, we remember. In Jesus' name, amen. Father God, as we consider the cup, it's not the cup itself. It's what it means in our lives. Because we know the cup is the blood of Christ. And that blood means so much to us. We don't take that lightly. We, we know that blood that is shed causes or comes from pain. We know Jesus bore that pain for us because he loves us, because you love us. And we thank you for that blood, that blood that rescues us, that blood that signifies we belong to you, that blood that saves us because Jesus gave it obediently and willingly. We thank you. And we remember together as we partake of the cup, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We said every sign and every symbol has a story. Every monument has a message to tell. And so as we embrace the story of Jesus that is our story, there is more to the story. It's a story to be told. So back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what does Paul say? In verse 26, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's an important word, proclaim. We often think about remembering, remembering, reflecting, and that's true. But Paul says, wait, there's more. You're also proclaiming. Communion is not just a time of reflection on the cross. It is a time of proclamation to the message of the cross. We are to share this story. Parents, we are to share it with our kids, grandparents, with our grandkids, anyone and everyone else, all of us, with anyone who will listen. Friends, neighbors, family members, co-workers, share the story. Proclaim his death until he comes. What do you think that means? It is an outward declaration. It is telling of Jesus. What are you doing to proclaim his death until he comes? The one thing about monuments and memorials that I think we all recognize is that they often evoke emotion. When you go down to the Oklahoma City National Memorial, you will feel something. You, you may feel multiple things, maybe even conflicting things or multiple emotions. If you go to the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, you will hopefully feel something. It will elicit emotion. 
If you go to the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C., you will be emotional. That's the nature of memorials and monuments. Many of us, probably most of us, have loved ones who have passed away. Sometimes we go to the cemetery and we see a grave marker, and maybe it has their names on it and and maybe dates, and that's a symbol, that's a sign. And that symbol sometimes evokes emotion and memories. And that's why we, we just stand there and look at it or sit there and look at the stone. And that's good. It should do that. Emotion is okay. Emotion is okay around the table of our Lord. It should make us emotional, what Jesus went through for us as we reflect on how we live, and yet he still did that for us. It should elicit emotion. And sometimes I think we just stuff that part and communion becomes something habitual and and rote and we do it every week and so we check that off the list and we move on. There should be emotion there. God gave you emotion. Express it. By the way, as I think about grave markers, a couple of weeks from now, on the Sunday of Memorial Day weekend, I think it's May 30th is that Sunday, we're going to spend a little bit of time that morning remembering, remembering loved ones from this congregation and loved ones of this congregation who over the past 12 or 15 months have passed away, some from COVID, some from other things. So many of them during this difficult year died alone. So many of you, so many of us didn't get to have like a real funeral or maybe a delayed funeral. And so we just want to pause. We just want to pause for a moment and acknowledge the grief that many feel and acknowledge the memory of those we love who have gone before us. And so we're going to do that on that Sunday. I hope that you'll, that you'll be here or that you can tune in if you're out of town. So that emotion is, is natural. That's a, that's a natural part of it. But that, as important as that is, that is not the ultimate response to the story. And this is important. What is the ultimate response? What does God want from us? Why does he give us these stories? Why did he tell Joshua to stack up or to arrange 12 stones to tell the next generation? What, what is it? Psalm 78 gives us a hint as it summarizes God's provision for his people and how they tell that story to, to the next generation. Psalm 78, my people hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they, in turn, would tell their children. And now look at verse 7. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. The ultimate response to the story, to the symbols, to the monuments and memorials, is that we trust God. Not just that we declare that God is powerful, that is, that is good, but that we trust the God who is all-powerful that we put our faith in his son, Jesus, that we obey, as the psalm says, that we obey him, submit to him and his will and his word. That is the response that God is looking for. And that's the difference the story makes in our lives. 
It changes the way we think and live and do everything. But you have to embrace the story. It has to be your story. God doesn't force you. I hope that you'll do that. I hope that you will not only embrace the story that is God's power and his deliverance through Jesus, but that you will pass it on. And that ultimately you and the people with whom you share it will put your trust in him. That's what it's about, trusting him. No matter what's happening in our world, no matter what the nature of this new world we enter, that you would trust God. Have you done that? Are you doing that? Maybe today you're ready to give your life to him, to confess your faith in Jesus as the Son of God and be baptized into Christ. I hope so. If that's the case, we would encourage you and celebrate with you. You can come forward and we'll make that happen today. Maybe we can pray for you. If you're online, go to our website, go to the prayer page, fill that out. If you're here, you can come forward. We want to help you on your journey into the new world, trusting God. Let's stand and sing together. Lord, I come.